First Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. This is what the Word of God has to say. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Whenever you're in danger, whenever there's a threat upon your life, whatever that may be, whether that's imposed by some evil, wicked source or maybe by a, uh, a disaster or some event that's happening, the, 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 most, the, the first impulse is to think about how you can be delivered. When you hear stories of someone who is in danger, when someone who is uh, in, in harm's way, the most natural, normal first impulse for you is to think about how can they be rescued. The most horrifying situations are when there is no way or no hope of saving those in danger. The gospel's good news is that God desires to rescue us and provide a way of salvation for us through Jesus. And I want to make as much of that as I can this morning. Chapter 2 begins, as I mentioned last week, Paul's instructions to the church on, our, on the proper order of the church. And as he discusses all of the proper order of the church, he's going to talk about our various roles, men and women and leadership and, and, and those in, in particular offices and all sorts of things. But before he dives into those subjects, he begins chapter 2 with two fundamental things for the church. Last week we dealt with the first, which was prayer. And we made the case that prayer is not the last thing the church does. Prayer is the first thing the church does. It is a priority. It is a first priority for the church. In fact, we even delved in a little bit into the order of the proper order of the church, where in verse 8, Paul says that it is the, the thing, it is the, what men of the church must be about ministry of prayer. But the second thing is the testimony of the gospel and the understanding of salvation through. Jesus. So this morning, I want to preach to you on the hope that is found only in Jesus. And I want to divide our time out of this passage in these three ways. I want to talk about the good gift of salvation, really coming from, from verse 3. From verse 4, I want us to look at the desire, the heart of God for you and for everyone in the world. And then lastly, I want to talk about the hope of man. Why is the gospel so of great hope for us? And how do you receive the hope of the gospel? Let's begin with the good gift. I, I see this coming right out of, right out of verse 3, where, where Paul writes, this is good. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of our God and our Savior. The good gift of salvation. A couple of things about the good gift of salvation. First of all, it is righteous and pure. 
So Paul says about the work of the redemption of Jesus, the ransom of Jesus for our sins, he says about it that it is good and it is pleasing. He says it is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God. In other words, it is righteous and pure. In these opening words, uh, Paul says it is good, but, but you may remember there are other opening words where the Bible uses good. In fact, the very opening words of the entire testimony of Scripture in Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 2, the word good is a pretty prominent word there. And the Bible declares that this creation of the world and all that is in it is what? Good. Genesis chapter 1 verse 4, the light is good. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 12, the plants are good. In verse 18, the sun and moon are good. In verse 21, the creatures of the sea and the birds of the air are good. In verse 25, the animals are good. In verse 31, man and everything that God created is, God declared, good. You may remember in the, in the ministry of Jesus, a, a questioner came up to Jesus and quest, addressed him with an honorific title. He said, good teacher. And Jesus responded to that, that kindness, that generosity, that, that deferential uh, title of good teacher. He said, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Now, both in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and in Mark chapter 10, where Jesus pushed back on the, the, the questioner calling him good, both of these are, 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 are elevating the understanding of what we mean by good. So most of the time when you and I use the word good, we mean we like something or that it is preferable to something else. But when the Bible uses good, when God declares something as good, he means it in a much different sense, in a much higher sense, in a much more intense, truest sense. When God says something is good, when he created the heavens and the earth and the plants and the animals and man, and he said, it is good, he wasn't saying it's better than something else. And he wasn't saying, I like it in the sense of it's, it is, it's, it's uh, something nice to have. No, God was saying, when God says something is good, he's saying it's without blemish, it's holy, it is perfect. When Jesus says, why do you call me good teacher, only God is good, he's saying the only one you can say of good that is good is God because only God is perfect and holy and pure. And now in 1 Timothy chapter 2, what does, what does Paul say? What does the Bible say about the ransom of Jesus? The word that Paul uses for, that is translated in most of your translations as good means to pertaining to a positive, and here's the key word, moral quality. In other words, its character, its nature, its very essence is good. The point is that the desire of God that all men be saved is right, it is holy, it is praiseworthy, it is morally, righteously correct. God is good. All that God does is good. All that God desires is good. It is a right and good desire that all would come to the saving knowledge of salvation. Friends, that's where we begin with this passage. It is right. It is good. Like all of creation was good. Like God himself is good. It is right. It is good. It is morally upstanding. It is righteous and pure for God to desire that all come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
It is right and good for you to desire that all would come to the saving knowledge of salvation. Not only does he say it is good, but he also says that it is, he says that it is good and, it, and, and, it, and um, it is pleasing in the sight of our God, our Savior. So not only is it, is it righteous and pure, but it is also acceptable and worthy for God to desire your salvation. Paul writes that this is good and pleasing. The second word translated as pleasing means to, pertaining to that which is pleasing in the view of something being acceptable. Both good and pleasing are referencing to being in the sight of God. So it is good and pleasing. Then Paul says, in the sight of God. And that just simply means in the judgment of God. The point is that God has judged the work of salvation as good and acceptable pleasing and desirable and worthy of his glory. Now, when you're reading this passage, you may be tempted to read past these words thinking they're just simply niceties. It's good and pleasing in the sight of God. But I want you to take a moment to appreciate the theological weight of what Paul is saying here. The work of salvation, of salvation of man from sin is not an afterthought of God. The work of salvation of man from our wicked sins, not an afterthought of God, is not a begrudging response of God. Oh, no, the people have messed up. Now I've got to go do something to fix it. No. And it is not a secondary issue for God. So it's not something that sort of captures attention, but really not part of the, the, the desire, the heart, the attention of God. No. The work of salvation of man from our sin is the good and acceptable pleasure of God. In other words, Paul is saying this is part of his nature. It's part of his heart. It's part of his mind. It is his attention. It is good and acceptable and holy in the judgment of God to pursue the salvation of wicked men for the glory of his name. Jesus leaving heaven to dwell in the humility of the flesh was God's good and holy pleasure. Jesus giving himself on the cross, a wicked cross for the salvation of wicked men, was God's good and holy pleasure. The opportunity for vile rebels to repent and be saved from their sin is the good and holy pleasure of God. It is good. It is right. It is acceptable. It is worthy of the praise of God that he would desire that you and you and you and you and me be saved. That's heavy weight, friends. The desire of the eternal living God is that you would be saved. It's a good gift. And that good gift is the desire of God. Oh, the weight of this passage grows even greater in verse 4 where it says, Who, speaking of God, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You don't need to be a theologian here. You can read that text as easy as I can, that the desire of God is that all would be saved. One of the most wonderful texts in all of Scripture is this text, that God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. 
The word that is translated there as desire means to, to desire to have or to experience, to want, to wish. And maybe more importantly there, the word that is translated as all, you know what that means? This is a hard one. It means all. And, and, and not all in the sense of all the folks in South Georgia or all the folks in this particular area or all the folks that meet these qualifications. No, that word all literally means all. So an unrestricted uh, everything, all mankind, everything, everyone, the whole, the everything. And I believe the simplicity of this statement is intended so that it clearly communicates the unlimited nature of this statement. In other words, I think that there's, 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 there's eternal godly wisdom in making this so simple. A third grader and a college president can understand this sentence. God desires that all would be saved. What does that mean? It means that God desires that all would be saved. God who knows all and knows the number of all things desires that all would come to the saving knowledge of truth. Now we must be careful as we understand this passage to make a distinction between desire and outcome. This is a declaration of the desire of God, not the will of God. The Bible is clear that not all will be saved. So Matthew 7, verse 21, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Luke chapter 13 says, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Jesus says later in, in Luke 13 that the way unto salvation is the narrow door and many will miss it. And, and, and some who thought they were safe because of their heritage in the law will actually miss it. Speaking of those who live in rebellious sin, Paul will write in Romans 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Jesus will declare in John chapter 10 that he knows his, who are his sheep and who are not. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. So the reality of it is we wrestle with this. Not all will repent. Therefore, those who do not repent will likewise perish. Not all will turn from their sin and therefore remain under the wrath of God. Not all will put their faith in Jesus alone for salvation and be ransomed from their sin unto salvation. But do not let this diminish at all that the desire of God remains that all would repent, that all would turn from their sin, that all would put their faith in Jesus and be saved. Friends, God sent his son for you because he desires that you be saved from your sin. I cannot know, I do not know whether or not you will repent of your sin and be saved, but I can say this with full assurance that the desire of God is that you would.
God desires that all would be saved, and it says he desires that all would come to know the truth. Salvation and the knowledge of truth are inseparably connected. Now, I'm going to say a few things that seem to be saying the same thing, but it may be a little confusing. Knowing the truth leads to salvation. And being saved and made new in Christ gives you the ability to know the truth. Knowing the truth leads to salvation. And when you are saved, you are then able to know the truth. I think those are separate ideas, but you can understand how they are inseparably connected. Truth is true whether you have knowledge of it or not. Salvation does not give you new truth. It does not change the truth. What salvation does is it allows you to know what has always been true. So it allows you to understand the truth of your sin. The Bible says of all of us that you were born into sin that causes you to be under the wrath and the judgment of God. Romans 2 says, For all have sinned without the law, will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Romans 3 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because of our sin, the truth is that we, those that are in sin, are under the righteous, holy wrath of God. Romans 2 says, but because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of, of wrath when God righteous judgment will be revealed. Ephesians 5 says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Colossians 3 says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The truth is you're in sin. And because of sin, God's holy wrath is upon you. And all, the truth is that all need salvation. Romans 8 says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In chapter 6, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for your sin in accordance with the Scripture. And the truth is that those who believe upon Jesus, God will be faithful to redeem. Acts chapter 16 the jailer, what must I do to be saved? And the response is, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Romans 10, 9 and 10, maybe the most precious words unto salvation in all of Scripture says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our, of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, God's desire is not to hide the truth. God's desire is not that you, to keep you in the dark or in the mystery of what saves. No, God desires that all men be saved and that you come to the knowledge of truth. God desires that you know the truth and be saved by the truth. It's a good gift. It's the desire of God. 
And Jesus is the hope of man. So in verse 5, Paul says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus, or the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So there are some things here that Paul says about salvation and about the relationship of God toward man and Jesus toward man that if you're not careful, you'll read past and miss some pretty important things. So the first thing he says about the hope of the redemption of, of, uh, uh, through Christ is that there is but one God. Verses 5, 6, and 7 are a declaration of the hope and the exclusivity of the gospel. One of the classic theological denials uh, of the gospel that comes out of theological liberalism is, is to deny that there is but one God. Often this is communicated with statements such as this. You may have heard similar statements. They will say, well, all roads lead to God. So whatever spiritual pursuit you want to go after, that's fine because all spiritual roads lead to God. Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism, uh, whatever you want to pick, just get, a, get on some road and all roads lead to God. Or maybe all paths lead to the top of the mountain. And so just, just be spiritual. Pursue something and it's okay. But in verse 5, the Bible rejects this lie and states clearly that there is but only one God. The singularity of God is also a singularity of truth. All paths don't lead to God. All spiritual pursuits do not arrive at truth. There is one God, therefore there is one truth. Today it is very popular to personalize speech about truth. You've heard these phrases when I begin to, to use them. So today people will say things like this. They'll say, I'm pursuing my truth. Have you heard that? Or, or, or they'll say, I, listen, this is my identity. My identity is founded in my truth. Or maybe a more spiritualized way, they'll say, I'm pursuing my path. Or they might say, this is part of my reality. Now, when people say those things, it sounds spiritual. And frankly, the churches struggle with how do you respond to someone who's saying, this is my truth. Truth's a heavy word. It has some theological meaning when somebody says, this is my truth. It seems unsettling to say to someone, your truth is not true and it is a lie. But I want to make the case, friends, that if you're pursuing your truth, then therefore you are not pursuing God's truth. And if there is one God, there is one truth. And if there is one truth, then each of you cannot have individual truths. And if you therefore are pursuing an individual truth, you're not pursuing the truth of God, you're pursuing idol worship. The personalizing of truth does not make these claims true. You can say they're true, but it doesn't make them true. 
Demanding that others affirm what you declare is personally true does not make your claims true. Personalizing truth is the rejection of the one true God and the declaration that you are God. So when you say, this is my truth, what you're saying is I have installed myself on the throne of my life to declare what is and what is not. That's why I say it's idolatrous. You've elevated yourself to the place that only God can sit. Paul says there is one God. The Bible rejects us with this, this first Five words in verse 5. There is one God and you are not it. You cannot receive the gift of salvation until you reject and put away the false idols, even the false idol of self. Listen to me. Listen to me very carefully. There is no hope in a sea of dead and false idols. Your truth may feel good for a moment, but it is leading to destruction and disaster. Humble yourself before the one true God and know the hope of the gospel that is found only in him. There is one God, and Paul says there is only one mediator, that is Christ Jesus. God has provided one way to be saved. And the Bible says that salvation is only found through Jesus alone. In in John chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know me, and you have seen him. I am the way, the truth, and the life No one comes to the Father except through me. Again, the Bible is making an exclusive statement. There is one God and there is one mediator. The only way to be saved is through Jesus. Salvation cannot and will not be found through any other means. You cannot be saved through inheritance or blood lineage. In the New Testament, the, the big struggle between Jesus and the, and the Hebrews is they would say, but we're children of Abraham. We can follow our family heritage all the way back to Abraham. And the point Jesus was making is blood lineage. Heritage does not make you right before God. Faith makes you right before God. Amen. Salvation will not come through your good works. Good works follow salvation, but they never precede salvation. Salvation will not come through religious service. It doesn't matter what title you held or how long you held it in the church. Unless you have believed upon Jesus through through repentant faith, you will not be saved. Salvation doesn't come through personal sacrifice. And listen, this this is the one for our day. Listen carefully. It doesn't come through being spiritual. As our culture has grown more secular, it has not grown, grown less spiritual. Spirituality continues now, but, but to, today it's just disconnected from the one God, the one mediator, the one truth, Jesus. You'll encounter some folks. Maybe you are one of these folks that's very spiritually minded, but friends, listen to me. Spirituality disconnected from the exclusivity of Jesus and the truth of God will not save you. 
Jesus fulfilled the old covenant of the law and established a new covenant in his blood. Hebrews 9 says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who, have, who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The word that Paul uses that is translated as mediator is it means to be a person who acts as a mediator in in bringing about reconciliation so not just communicating one side to the other but but someone who brings the two parties back to a right relationship the only way to be reconciled to the one true god is to be saved through the one true mediator the blood and the ransom of jesus christ Friends, give up everything. Give up everything else and receive Jesus to be saved from your sin. There's one other thing I want you to see in this passage that is a very hopeful word. The hope of man is in one God, in one mediator, that is Jesus, and this hope is for all. We began with the desire of God. We end today with the hope of man is for all. So in verse 6 and 7, Paul makes some statements that you might just think he's added on, but they they very much are connected to what he's just said. So in verse 6, he says, Who gave himself, that is Jesus, as a ransom for how many? For all which is the testimony given at the proper time. Verse 7, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Verse 6 declares that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. Again, in this passage, the Bible uses the unlimited word for all, meaning the totality of any object, a mass, a collection, or the extension of all, every, each, and whole, everyone. Added to this is verse 7, which is a personal testimony to the ministry that God had called Paul to. He says that God had appointed him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Now, that's important because that's founded on the desire of God that all be saved, and the gift of Jesus, one God, one mediator, to all. The gospel was first delivered to the Jews, God's chosen people. But because God desires that all men be saved, he gave his son for the whole world. Maybe the first Bible verse you ever memorized, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son Jesus for me when I read this passage particularly that little phrase as a ransom for all the passage that comes to my mind is the invitation at the end of his sermon that Peter gave at the day of Pentecost if you're not familiar with that at that moment Jesus had been crucified, buried, the third day had risen again, had spent days with his disciples and had risen again. And then the disciples, excuse me, had had ascended to heaven. And the disciples 
And the followers of Jesus had spent a period waiting on the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit came, it's the day of Pentecost, and Peter preached a wonderful sermon, the first New Testament sermon that's recorded in Scripture. It's recorded in Acts chapter 2. In the invitation portion of that sermon, the people are asking, what, what, what must we do to be saved? Peter has, speaks these words. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 38, he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, he's speaking to a Jewish audience in this moment. But he goes on and says, And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you, those that are hearing him preach, your children, your descendants, and here's where it gets interesting, and for all who are far off. Who are the ones who are far off? Or is those that weren't there, certainly, but it, what he means by that is those who are not necessarily Jewish by heritage, not kin, kin by, by, de, by descendants or inheritance sake. For you and for those who are far off, the entire world is what he's speaking about. He says, for those for you and are far off. And just in case they didn't understand what he was meaning by that, he went on and said, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. God desires that all would be saved. The one God, through the one mediator, has provided a ransom for all. That you and your children and those who are far off, everyone who God calls to himself, would be saved. The hope of the gospel is for the Jews. The hope of the gospel is for the Jews' descendants. And the hope of the gospel is for the entire world, those who are far off, everyone for whom the Lord calls to himself. Friends, I don't know of a more hopeful word to say than to say right where you sit today, I can with full assurance say to you, God desires that you be saved. God has provided for you to be saved. The question is, will you repent and be saved? Ransoms are always costly. The ransom of Jesus for your sin was very costly. If you were to thumb through the pages of the Guinness World Book of Records, looking for the most costly ransom ever paid, the Guinness World Book of Records is going to calculate that differently than maybe you and I would. And it points to a ransom paid in gold and silver in the year 1532. The Spanish were conquering the Incas, and the last Incan emperor had been captured. And knowing that the Spanish had an affinity for gold and silver, he attempted to save his own life by paying a ransom. The numbers are quite spectacular. A room with the dimensions of 22 feet long, 17 feet wide, and 8 feet tall was filled from back to front, floor to ceiling, once with gold and twice with silver to try to, to pay for his freedom from the Spanish. It's estimated that in today's dollars, that ransom payment 
would have been somewhere in the neighborhood of one and a half billion dollars. No matter the extravagance of the amount, it would prove to be too little as its captors eventually executed him. His point, though, points to the reality that applies to all of us. No matter how great, there is no amount that you could ever pay to satisfy the ransom demanded for your soul. Even if you were the richest person to ever walk the face of the earth, even if you personally were able to acquire everything of value in the entire globe and amass it in one place and offer it up as a ransom for your soul, it would not be enough. And the great glorious hope of the gospel is knowing that you would never be able to ransom your own soul. God desiring that you would be saved and welcomed in the glory of heaven with him to dwell for with him in eternity for all of eternity. He, the one God, gave the one ransom, the one mediator, Jesus, for you that you might be saved. That if you would confess your sins, believe, Jesus died for your sins and rose again and confess him as Lord, you will be saved. The ransom has been given. The desire is there. The question is, will you heed the call and respond to the gift that's been given? Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.